Good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, open up a Bible to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to make things very easy on you tonight. If you'll get that Bible out, be in Hebrews chapter 12. We will just work the entire chapter through the entirety of our study. We won't be jumping around anywhere else. We're just going to work right here in this great chapter of the New Testament. Turning to Hebrews chapter 12, let me join in the welcome from earlier and let me say how great it is to be with you tonight, to be with you uh, yesterday and uh, this morning and throughout the afternoon. And I really didn't, uh, I thought of this as I was walking up here, I really didn't think of anything grandiose to say in my introduction here after not having inhabited this pulpit for nearly a year. I just would, just, I just would say I, just, I love you all and I'm so appreciative of the time to be able to be with you this weekend. I'm going to just keep it short and sweet lest I become like David. David didn't do it this morning. I was fully expecting David to go into full weeping prophet mode as he is wont to do, but he didn't. He kept it in and uh, so I'm going to try to keep it in. I had the waterworks working yesterday afternoon so uh, let's just get into the text. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, it was suggested amongst us three preachers, what should we preach on uh, today? And it was suggested maybe let's just preach our favorite sermon. I don't know whether Michael and David preach their favorite sermons today or not. I, uh, whatever my favorite sermon is, I've already preached it here. So I thought instead what I'd like to do is like to preach something that you haven't heard before, at least from me. Let's read in the text. In Hebrews chapter 12, this is verse 22. There the writer says, Hebrews 12, 22, But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Who wants to go mountain climbing this evening? Anybody interested in that? Some of you are thinking right now, no, I don't like to do that. That's not my bag. I'm not really interested in outdoor activities like that. Well, whether that is your cup of tea or not, I am going to invite all of us this evening to go climb a mountain. Now, don't worry. You're not going to need to put on any kind of special hiking boots. You're not going to need to find you a good walking stick or any other kind of special gear because we're going to go climb a very, very unique mountain. In fact, it's not even a physical mountain. But yet I should tell you that it is no less grand, it is no less thrilling, and it is no less amazing than the kinds of things that you would see if you were to climb to the top of Mount Everest, or Mount Kilimanjaro, or maybe even down in Tennessee, the Great Smoky Mountains. And furthermore, I, suggest, I should suggest to you about this mountain this evening that the higher and the higher that you climb it, the less and less likely that you're ever going to want to come back down from it. Is that enough to intrigue you to want to go mountain climbing this evening? Are you interested in that? This evening what I'd like to do for a few minutes is I'd like to take us on a tour. And I'd like to help us to see the grandeur and the glory of this spiritual mountain. This mountain that we've already sung about tonight. This mountain known as Mount Zion. Nearly 2,000 years ago, there was a group of Christians, we simply call them the Hebrews, who were really considering abandoning this mountain. Because they didn't see the greatness of it. They didn't understand just how awesome and amazing that it really was. And so the Hebrew writer wrote them a letter. He sent them this epistle to try to give them a guided tour of Mount Zion to encourage them to keep on climbing on that mountain. And I do believe that even though we are a couple of millennia removed from the original writing of that letter, I believe we can still benefit from it today. 
Because think about it, just like those Hebrew Christians, there are occasions in our lives where we grow weary, where we become discouraged, times where we even feel like giving up on the Lord, just quitting this Christianity thing altogether. Sometimes the goal of heaven, it just seems so far away. It seems so out of reach. It almost seems like an impossibility to us. And what we need most in that moment is to see with greater clarity this mountain to which we have come. We need to be able to see what is on that mountain. We need to see where that mountain is. And furthermore, we need to see what that mountain is compelling us to do so that ultimately we can reach the pinnacle of it someday. It's a privilege to be a part of a study of the book of Hebrews just a couple of months ago. And as we came to chapter 12, I just was very much struck by the imagery that the writer uses here and wanted to try to develop some ideas from this chapter that will motivate even us today, living in the 21st century, and maybe even answer some questions along the way that maybe you've had about Mount Zion. I was able to answer a question that I long struggled with out of this chapter. I'll see if maybe it'll be something that'll be beneficial to you tonight, but I hope all of us will be helped by spending a few moments in this great chapter of the book of Hebrews. And we do need to take this entire chapter all together. In many ways, Hebrews 12 is kind of like a mountain in and of itself. The peak of it, I would suggest maybe, are those verses that we just read in verses 22, 23, and 24. But of course, you really need to start all the way back at the beginning. You need to start in verse 1 and then walk your way up the side of the mountain and then once we've gotten to the peak, then we can begin to kind of start walking back down the side of the mountain. That's verses 25 through the end of the chapter. And we can then know what we need to do with all of that. So let's just approach this chapter as if we were the original audiences. We've received a letter. This Hebrew writer has written to us. Let's just approach it, start in verse 1, and work our way forward to see what it is that he's trying to convey to us. You remember that chapter 11 is that great chapter of the Bible about faith where the writer cites all those great Old Testament heroes and points to them as being examples of endurance and faithfulness. In light of all of that, he begins chapter 12, verse 1, with these words, chapter 12, 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And so actually, instead of beginning this chapter with the imagery of climbing a mountain, the writer actually wants to use a different kind of metaphor. He begins by talking about the idea of running a race. And that, of course, is a very apt metaphor for the Christian life, isn't it? Because, as he points out in these first four verses, that can oftentimes be difficult for us. When you're running a race, there's always going to be challenges, there's always going to be difficulties, there's always going to be trials. And so it is in the Christian race. It brings all that same stuff, trials, difficulties, and challenges. And that takes on many forms. Verse 1, it could be sin. That's a big challenge that we face in this race. 
He also makes mention there in verse 1 of other things. The, the weight that so easily besets us. I think that encompasses lots of things. That encompasses many times the cares of this life. The burdens of day-to-day life. Those things can weigh us down. It can even include verse 4. That could be persecution. There's all kinds of things that can trip us up. All kinds of obstacles that can get in the way of us finishing this race, seeing it through to the end. In fact, sometimes those obstacles we can begin to justify and rationalize in our mind as being legitimate reasons to just throw in the towel. What's the Hebrew writer say about all that? He says emphatically, don't give up. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to the Savior. Think about all that the Savior has done in paving the way for you. How he marched that exact same path. Jesus endured the temptations. Jesus endured the difficulties. Jesus endured the hostilities. He shows us that it can be done. Keep looking to him. What you and I need to remember is that in this race, we do not run in our own strength. We run in the strength of the Lord. And that's what the writer wanted these people to understand. Now, of course, you read those first four verses, and that's pretty encouraging stuff, isn't it? Looking to Jesus. Yeah, I need to do that. We all need to do that. But, of course, even if we are looking to Jesus, the fact of the matter is, that doesn't make our trials go away, does it? I can look to Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and the trials are still going to be there. In fact, in the next set of verses, what the Hebrew writer says is that sometimes those difficulties that we face, God actually puts them there. God puts them there on purpose. And there is a purpose behind that. Verse 5. Verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. What a wonderful passage to be reading here on Father's Day. And we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What the writer says here is that part of the Christian life is accepting and even appreciating the discipline of the Lord. These Hebrew Christians, if you had read this letter all the way up to chapter 12, you would know they had endured some tough stuff. They were suffering. And because of that, they were thinking about just bailing on the Lord altogether. Just give up this Christianity business. Let's just go back to Judaism. That was was a much easier road for us to walk. And so the writer tries to help them to recognize, listen, that suffering that you're going through, I understand that, but it's not all bad. It's not, not all suffering is bad. Some suffering is actually the Father's attempt to shape and to mold and to bring us into conformity with His Son. And in that way, then, that makes suffering many times a blessing for us. It is the blessing of a father who loves us so much that he would do that for us. 
And listen, for as much as I'd love to stand up here tonight and tell somebody maybe who maybe is not yet a Christian, maybe you're thinking about becoming a Christian, I'd love to stand up here and tell you that as soon as you come up out of that water as a child of God, hey, what that means is that means all the difficulties and all the pain and all the trials of this life, you'll never have to endure that again. I wish I could tell you that, but I can't. Because the fact of the matter is, God didn't even do that for His own Son. And the reason for that, the reason God doesn't do that for us is because he wants to use those trials to make us better, to make us stronger. And what you and I need, what these people needed, was a shift in perspective about suffering and about trials. Which then leads to the writer just kind of summarizing, in many ways, his entire message of the book, and that is don't let anything, anything, get in the way of you remaining faithful to the Lord. And so he says in verse 12, Therefore... Therefore, in light of these hardships that we are going to endure, you're going to encounter them in this race, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Would you stop right there? Think about that in this race imagery here. Can you imagine running like a really long race, maybe like a half marathon, running 13 miles? And you get to like the 12 and a half mile marker and you just decide, I I just can't finish. I just just can't get all the way there. That's what he's describing here. Falling short of the grace of God. What a terrible thing that would be. He goes on to say, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble, and by it many be defiled. And that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And so there's all kinds of things he mentions there, whether it's some personal weakness that you are struggling with. All of us have different things that we struggle with from day to day. Whether that's conflict with other people, which is why he says pursue for peace whether it's some bitterness that maybe you have about the past and things that have happened in the past, whether it's immorality, whatever it may be, fill in the blank with anything. Don't allow anything to cause you to give up on God. Don't be like Esau, so foolish, to trade in an eternity of blessings for a few fleeting moments of reprieve and pleasure. God has given you too many tools, Christian. In fact, if you had read the book of Hebrews up to this point, you would have been making note of many of those tools and resources that God has given to his people to help us along the way. God's given you things like your brothers and sisters in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 13. God has given you his word, the very road map from here to heaven. Chapter 4, verse 12. God's given you the avenue of prayer where you can speak to him and lay your cares at his feet. Chapter 4, verse 16. Those and a host of other blessings. God has given you those things to keep you supported all along the way. See to it that nothing hinders you from finishing this race. Now, all of that, those first 17 verses, all of that, I'm sure, sounded well and good to those first century Hebrew Christians. That's a nice little pep rally. Thanks for sending us that. That's a good little motivational speech. But come on. Why would we want to keep enduring the difficulties that we are facing? And make no mistake about it, these Christians in the first century were dealing with a lot at this point. 
fact, the writer makes mention of some of those things back in the earlier chapters. Why would we want to keep putting up with this stuff, being followers of Christ, when we could just go back to what we were doing before? It was a whole lot easier when we were serving God according to the law of Moses. Why do we need to keep doing this Christianity stuff? We can just go back to that. We, had, we were good, law-abiding Jews, and we didn't have to worry about having our property plundered, chapter 10 talks about. We didn't have to worry about being publicly ridiculed in front of everybody. Why can't we just go back to that system of doing things where we were much more comfortable and we were much more familiar and we can still have a, we can still have a relationship with God? Why can't we just do that? And the Hebrew writer begins to answer that definitively starting in verse 18 when he tells these people, you, you have not come to Mount Sinai. Talking about a mountain now again. He says, you're looking at the wrong mountain. If you're looking for some motivation to keep serving the Lord, then what you need to do is you need to stop looking over here at this lesser mountain. In fact, he says that beginning in verse 18. He says, for you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them for they could not even bear the command that if a beast touches the mountain it will be stoned and so terrible was the sight that even Moses said I am full of fear and trembling now I want to be careful this evening I do not want to come across like I am belittling what the Israelites experienced in Exodus chapter 19 when they approached Mount Sinai. That is what he's describing here. He's describing that moment when the Israelites came to the foot of that mountain. You read in Exodus chapter 19 and the spectacle that those people saw and what they heard. I am certain that when God descended on the mountain, I am sure it was nothing short of breathtaking. And it is a proper use of the word awesome. It would have been awesome to see all of that. I don't want to minimize what happened at Sinai at all. But you know what? For the sake of comparison to the greatness of this other mountain, Mount Zion, that's actually exactly what the writer does. He does minimize Sinai. He says that mountain, it is inferior. And I actually can break that out for you in a couple of different directions to prove to you the inferiority of Mount Sinai. First of all, as impressive as all of that thunder and lightning and fire and smoke and the blast of the trumpet, as, as impressive as all of that was, the things that happened at Mount Sinai, its glory, its glory was limited. It was limited, first of all, by time and by space. Think about what happened in Exodus chapter 19. It only happened at a single location thousands and thousands of miles from where we're at right now. And it happened on that one occasion thousands and thousands of years ago. If you and I, if we wanted to go visit Mount Sinai today, we could. We could hop on an airplane maybe later this evening and we maybe would arrive somewhere over there in the Middle East, maybe, I don't know, by like Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. And we could get there and you know what we would see? What we would see is we would just see a big giant hill of rock and of dirt. And why is that? Well, because God's glory was only there for that one year in Exodus chapter 19. And so if we wanted to somehow see the glory of God at Mount Sinai, not only would we have to travel to the complete other side of the world, on top of that, we'd also have to get ourselves a DeLorean. We'd have to hop in a time machine, and we'd have to go back to that time. 
We'd have to go back to that moment when God was there on the mountain. What I'm saying to you, what the writer is saying here, is that Sinai was limited by time and by space. We can't go back there. And the fact of the matter is, even if we could somehow go back there, number two, we'd have to keep our... Well, you can't even see what I'm putting up here. Here I am, pointing up here at all this stuff going on. I know you're even seeing that. We'd have to keep our distance from God. We'd have to stand far, far away from Him. That is another of the limitations of Mount Sinai. You know, whenever the Israelites, when they assembled there at that mountain in Exodus chapter 19, do you remember? They were not invited to come up into the mountain and just kind of hang out with the Lord for the afternoon, were they? Moses got to go up, but everybody else was told by God, I'm up here, you all stay down there. In fact, they were instructed even not to even touch it. Let alone go climbing on it. Don't you even touch this mountain. And so there was some separation there between God and the people at Mount Sinai. And then thirdly in this connection, the whole tone and tenor of what took place at Mount Sinai, it was one of terror and one of dread. The Hebrew writer I think actually alludes to that in these verses. Did you notice there? This was not, hey everybody, welcome to Mount Sinai. This is the place where I, the glorious God of heaven, am going to meet you here and we're going to sing songs of love and joy and harmony and peace and it's just going to be a wonderful afternoon. That's that's not the way that happened. Look at verse 18 again. It was described as having darkness and gloom. Verse 19, the people begged for God to stop speaking to them. Verse 20, they couldn't bear to hear the command. Verse 21, even Moses himself was full of fear and trembling. Mount Sinai was impressive in many ways, but it had limitations all over it. And that is why the Hebrew, says, Hebrew writer says, you've not come to that one place for that one year, standing far, far away from God, and you're subjected to Him largely out of a sense of fear and dread. You haven't come to that. What he says is he says, Christian, you have come to something so much greater And it is that that you need to marvel at. Not at this inferior mountain. You need to marvel at this much greater mountain. Read verse 22 again with me. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. I'm going to talk about some motivation to, to persevere, some motivation to keep on running the race, some motivation to keep on climbing the mountain, some motivation to not give up. Right here it is. Look at what we have on Mount Zion. Now, somebody right now is probably thinking to themselves, well, Josh... All right, I mean, that sounds great and all, but that, that description of Mount Zion there, it, it really just kind of sounds like what we're going to get to experience in heaven someday. You know, all those really great blessings that we're going to get to enjoy in the sweet by and by. Meanwhile, I, I live in the miserable here and the now. I live in a place and in a time when, when suffering and temptation And sorrow, all of that, that's very real right now. Mount Zion, yeah, it sounds like something wonderful to enjoy later, but I need something that's going to help me in the present. And you know what? That is a very common way of thinking 
about Zion, the concept of Zion. In fact, have you noticed that the majority of the hymns that we sing that allude to the idea of Zion, that's usually the way that the songs describe Zion? I actually kind of baited Derek a little bit this evening in selecting all those songs that we sang about Zion. We'll sing another one before the evening is over. But all of those songs, do you notice as we sing them, they seem to be talking about a place that we are not yet at. It's a place we're looking forward to going to, but, but it's not something that we have right now. Can I suggest to you tonight that I believe that that is an incomplete picture of this mountain? How do I know that? Look at verse 22 again. Verse 22, the Hebrew writer does not say, you will one day come to Mount Zion. He does not say, you know what, if you march through Emmanuel's ground long enough and hard enough, hey, eventually you'll get to see this mountain and enjoy the blessings of it. What does he say in verse 22? He says, you, Christian, you, living and breathing on planet earth right now, you have come to Mount Zion. It is here and it is now. Yes, you will get to experience the fullness of Mount Zion when we get to heaven but you know what? You can also enjoy some of its benefits right now. I know this because of what the Hebrew writer goes on to explain that this mountain represents. Do you know what the mountain represents? Not to get too far ahead of myself, but would you look at verse 28? In verse 28, the writer says, this Zion, it represents, it is a description of the kingdom of God. The reign and the rule of King Jesus. Let me ask you, thinking about the reign and rule of King Jesus, is that something that's only going to be limited to heaven later on? That Jesus will only be reigning and ruling, you know, in eternity, far, far from now? Is that the only time Jesus reigns? No. Jesus the King reigns now, right now. He has rule and reign in the present in our lives. And you know what? We get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that kingdom. Colossians talks about we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Which means that this mountain, compared to Sinai, this mountain is not bound by time and by space. Think about it. It doesn't matter where you live. We're down in Tennessee now. David and his family's up in Indiana. Everybody else here, as far as I know, is here in Kentucky. Aubrey's going to be going to Washington before long. But guess what? doesn't matter. We're all on the mountain. Those of us that are in Christ, we're all on that mountain. And it doesn't matter when you live. It doesn't matter at what point in history, whether you're a first century Christian or whether you're a 21st century Christian. You can come and you can behold the glory of Mount Zion right now. It is seen everywhere wherever people are submitting to the reign and rule of King Jesus. Furthermore, unlike Sinai, Mount Zion is characterized by close fellowship with God. It's not a, a distant thing. This mountain does not require us to stand back far, far away, just, just totally detached from a holy and awesome God. No, we have come to God, verse 23, the judge of all. We have come to Jesus, verse 24, the mediator of the new covenant. We get to enjoy a relationship with our creator that the people back at Sinai were not able to enjoy at that time. And why? Because we have the sprinkled blood of Jesus that enables us to draw near to Him, to have access to Him. And it is because of that, thirdly, that our relationship to God, our relationship to God is not defined 
by terror, and by dread. Yes, there is a sense in which we have a reverence and an awe and and a holy fear for God. But we respect and we obey God. Why, ultimately? Because we love Him. We love Him who first loved us. What wonderful privileges and blessings that we enjoy that are granted to us when we come to this holy mountain. In fact, let me just deal right here with maybe an objection or two that might be going through some of your minds this evening. There might have been somebody here who's reading along in those verses. You're thinking to yourself, well, Josh, I don't know. I, I still think this Mount Zion thing is talking about, you know, a later thing. I think that's talking about simply and solely the abode of God. It's that place that, yes, if we're faithful to the Lord, one day we will get to go and inhabit, but it's going to be later on. For example, what about there in verse 22? Where it is described as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I mean, come on. That sounds like some pretty exclusive heaven language. Well, I would just say that definitely does include heaven, the abode of God, the place where God is dwelling on His throne. And yes, one day we will get to take up permanent residence in that place. But can I also remind you that in Revelation chapter 21, in verse 2, and then again in verse 10, that John saw that heavenly Jerusalem. He saw that holy city coming down out of heaven. And I'm saying to you tonight that we are citizens of that city now. Even as we are completing our pilgrimage here upon this earth, our citizenship is in heaven. Or somebody might ask about the end of verse 22 and say, well, you know, Mount Zion's described as being full of angels, myriads of angels and a numerous host. And I will concede once again that, yeah, when we get to heaven, we're going to see heaven's just, just filled with angels. Heaven most certainly is just surround These angels surround the throne of God, praise Him day and night, and we're going to get to see all of that when we get to heaven. But I'd also tell you what the writer told these people in Hebrews 1 verse 14. And that is that there are angels working on behalf of God's people now. They are ministering spirits sent forth to serve on our behalf. They are helping us in ways that we don't understand. We don't get to see and and know all the ins and outs of that, but they are working on our behalf. That's part of the blessings of being on Mount Zion. And the same thing could actually be said about God the Father, verse 23, or about Jesus the Son, verse 24. Somebody's going to say, well, Josh, we're not going to get to see them until we actually get to heaven. That's true. We'll get to see them as they are, see them face to face. But you know what? We can also have the promise of their presence now. That they are here with us now. Was it not the Lord who says at the end of this book, Hebrews 13 verse 15, excuse me, Hebrews 13 verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The point the writer is trying to convey is that Mount Zion, it is here today and it is also there tomorrow. It is in that spiritual realm, the abode of God that we cannot yet see. But you know what? It is seeable. It is evident. It is evident here in the physical realm in the lives of people who are surrendering themselves to the reign of King Jesus. I would submit to you it is seen in the lives of people sitting in this room right now. You know, Maybe the best way that I know to illustrate these verses is for us to use our imaginations just a little bit. Imagine if tonight, after the final amen is said, you walk out those double doors... And as soon as you step outside, you behold the most awesome, grandest, biggest, most amazing mountain you have ever seen. It is majestic. 
and it is just wonderful in every way. It is so high that you can't even see the top of it. And it is so wide that you can't see where it begins and where it ends. But imagine that at the top of that mountain, there are two thrones. And there the Father sits on one, and the Son is seated at His right hand. And yes, as well at the top, they are surrounded by countless angels, praising them, doing the bidding of the Father and of the Son. But imagine as you kind of begin scanning down, kind of looking at other parts of the mountain, imagine that you also notice that some of those angels, well, they're not just up there at the top. There's also some angels scattered around on the mountain. They're kind of everywhere, not just limited to the very top. They're at other places on the mountain. And maybe then as you begin to kind of glance around the various sides of the mountain, you then also start to notice the souls of faithful Christians who have gone on before. You maybe recognize some of them. People that we love and care for very dearly, but they're no longer here with us in this life. And you see them. And maybe as you begin to scan down even a little bit further, and you see just all of this, you begin to think, man, I, that seems pretty, pretty amazing. It seems like something I, I want to be on that mountain. I remember brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, so faithful Lord, and wherever that is that they're at, I, I want to be where they're at. And as you begin to look lower and lower and lower down the mountain, you then begin to look down to the bottom of your feet. And what do you see? You see that your feet are actually standing on that very mountain. You come to realize, I'm, I'm on the mountain. Now, I'm not at the top. I'm not there at the pinnacle where the Father and the Son are. And as well, I'm not there where, those, where the, the, the spirits of those who've gone on before, righteous men made perfect, that's mentioned there in that verse. I'm not in that place where, where they are, but I am standing on the mountain. And in fact, as you begin to look to your left and to your right, you notice that there's lots of other people, contemporaries of yours. Their feet are planted on the mountain, many of whom are sitting in this room right now. And although we can't always see them, we maybe even notice that some of those angels... They're down here where we are. And as well, so is God. And there's a sense in which Jesus as well is down here with us. Their presence is with us. And the saints all the world over whose names are enrolled in heaven, they're on the mountain. But the point is, it is a mountain that fills heaven and earth and it is known as Zion. And you, faithful Christian, you are on that mountain. What encouragement does that provide for us? I do need to say right here that if you're able to, to picture and to imagine that and you do happen to look down at your feet this very evening and you find that your feet are not standing on Mount Zion, you need to know that tonight is the night that you need to take a step forward. And in just a couple of moments you're going to have the opportunity to do just that, to get on the mountain. Before we do that though, can we get to maybe the practical part of this chapter? Because the writer wants to conclude with kind of some specific takeaways as we think about it. We have a complete and better understanding of Mount Zion. It ought to then compel us to be doing some things. And they're found right here in these remaining verses. Pick it up in verse 25. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. 
And this expression, yet once more, it denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, I said a few moments ago that the tone of Christianity is not one of terror and of dread, but these verses do make clear that for those people who are not on Mount Zion, God is going to be absolutely terrifying to them. Because a day is going to come when God is going to destroy all of this material universe. I hope nobody this evening, as I've talked about Mount Zion, thinks that I'm trying to advance some kind of idea that God's going to bring heaven and place it down here upon this earth. That's not what's going to happen. This earth, all the physical stuff that we see, it's going to be gone, obliterated. It will be destroyed. The only thing that will be left standing when that day comes will be this unshakable kingdom and all those who make up their citizenship of that kingdom. So how then should we live in anticipation of that great day? Well, the writer gives us two or three ideas. Verse 28, first of all, he begins that by saying, we need to show our gratitude to God. That, that, that's where that needs to start. We need to show gratitude to the Lord. Stop and think about the fact that God, He could have thundered and shouted and made noises and terrified us and just threatened us into submission to Him. God could have did it that way. But He didn't. That's not the way God chose to deal with us. Instead, God chose to appeal to us as a father Someone who loves us and who then invites us to come and live with Him on His holy mountain. Let me ask you tonight, Christian, how, how grateful are you for that? How often do you thank God for that? I imagine it's pretty easy for us to thank God for that today, first day of the week when we're here in this assembly, we're amongst kindred spirits, our minds are focused on spiritual things, but what about when we leave this place? What about all the other days of the week? How often... Does this thought flood your heart and your mind and your soul and then cause you to just pour yourself out in thanksgiving to God for what He's done? We need to tell God how thankful we are for that. We need to show God how thankful we are for that. And one of the ways that we show that, verse 28, is by offering Him acceptable service. What does that mean? Well, that means I'm definitely going to serve the Lord on Sunday morning. And I'm going to serve Him on Sunday night, as I'm doing right now. But that also means I'm going to serve Him on Monday when I go to work. And that means I'm going to serve Him all the other days of the week when I'm in my family. That means I'm going to serve Him in every time and at every place and in everything that I do. I'm going to serve Him as if I am living on a mountain that belongs to God because I am living on a mountain that belongs to God. I'm going to serve Him because He's worthy. And then finally what Mount Zion tells us and compels us to do is verse 25. And that is that under no circumstances should we ever refuse Him. If God has called you, has asked you, has summoned you to place your faith and your trust in His Son as the Savior of the world, do not refuse Him. If God has asked you to turn from your sins and to turn to Him and to live in a different way, do not refuse Him. If God has asked you to be buried in water, to be united with Christ for the remission of your sins, do not refuse Him. 
If God has called you to righteous and to holy living, do not refuse Him. And brother or sister, if God has called you to make some tough choices, some tough decisions in your life so that you can serve Him in a better way, do not refuse Him. I don't know where everybody's living this evening. I don't know what mountain you might be living on. There's all kinds of mountains you could be living on. I hope nobody's trying to live on Mount Sinai. That ain't going to work. But you might be trying to live on Mount Pleasure or maybe living on Mount Fun or Mount Family, Mount Relationship, Mount Tradition, whatever it is that sometimes we invest our life and every part of our being into. I'm going to tell you something about all those mountains. Not only are they inferior, but a day will come when those mountains will be absolutely leveled and destroyed. That's what the Lord says there in verse 25, 26, 27, and 28. A day is coming when the only thing that is going to remain is this one mountain, Mount Zion. So you better find yourself on it. Which means if there is anybody here this evening who needs to answer the call of Zion, we are imploring you. We are encouraging you through the words of this song. You probably ought to get your songbook out because this thing ain't coming on. Number 285, Zion's call. Heaven is calling. And the Lord is beckoning you to come and to live with Him and enjoy the blessings of fellowship with Him. If we can assist you in any way to that end tonight, we urge you to do that right now while we stand and while we sing.